0: This is David Gibson, I'm the executive editor for the Journal of Ecology, and I'm at the Ecological Society of America meetings in Baltimore. And I'm sitting with Carol Thornburg, who's one of our associate editors, and we're going to talk about um, aquatic ecology. So welcome, to our podcast series. Uh, Let's start, uh, Carol, by perhaps you just giving us a brief little bit of background on on you and what you do.
1: All right. I'm a marine community ecologist primarily. I'm sort of broadly trained in working in different types of, of ecological communities, looking at different different sorts of you know, specific interactions. My background is I did my, my bachelor's degree at Stanford University and while I was there I spent um, about half a year at their Hopkins Marine Station where I really got my first taste of marine ecology. And then from there I moved on to doing my Ph.D. work at the University of California Santa Barbara with Stephen Gaines and um, for that work, I, worked, I looked at the ecological dynamics surrounding life cycles of some marine algal, or seaweed species. And from there, I moved to the University of California, Davis, and did a postdoc with Jay Stakowitz. And then in 2004, I moved to the University of Rhode Island to begin a faculty position there. And I'm currently an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences.
0: Very good. Quite different from California in, in the East Coast.
1: <laughs> that it is. The marine the marine systems were, were quite different. So I had a nice um, a nice learning curve when I moved to the East Coast because some some the overall ge- ecological principles are similar, but the the key players are quite mm-hmm.
0: different. So the focus of your research lab, then, where you are now, is is probably a little bit different to what it was before then, as a postdoc.
1: It it is. I work um, my my postdoctoral and graduate work had all been on rocky shore marine rocky shore systems. And when I moved to the East Coast of the U.S., we have rocky shores. We also have a lot more estuarine habitats, some coastal lagoon settings. So, the types of habitats that my that I started doing research in became much more diversified, as well as the sorts of questions that I was that I was interested in addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the the first things that struck me when I moved to the East Coast was in Narragansett Bay, which is a large, well-mixed estuary that is fairly close to my my institution, we've been having a lot of um, problems with macroalgal or seaweed blooms. And this was something where there had been some preliminary work done, but for the most part, people weren't sure exactly which species were contributing to those blooms, or what sorts of factors might be shaping the the abundance and distribution of blooms, and they could have serious ecological consequences by contributing to hypoxic events and fish kills, as well as um, some economic um, problems. A lot of fishermen were starting to complain that these big mats of seaweed would get trapped in their nets, and then you know potentially rip their nets, not be allowing them to catch fish, and so there were a lot of um, economic. And economic potential impacts. Um, and another one had to do simply with a lot of seaweed washing up on shorelines surrounding Narragansett Bay, and then the beach going public, and a lot of the tourism industry that, that is an important part of Rhode Island's economy. Um, people don't like to go to the beach when there's a few, you know, a meter or so of seaweed washed up on the beach right. that is yes. that is rotting. So yeah. that that initially was something, something that, that grabbed my, my interest, and in that it was... There were, there were a whole series of, of interesting ecological questions that could be asked, and it also had some potential applications and some interest in, in my community, um, both for local scale as well as these are, these are problems that happen around the world in, in estuarine settings.
0: So this work allows you then to, um, on an applied context, but also to address some ecological principles as well?
1: Absolutely, both on nutrient, both on top-down you know, top down as well as bottom-up sorts of processes. So nutrient impacts on blooms, that, that is an area that has received a greater deal of attention. There have been a lot of ecosystem ecologists who have looked at nutrient impacts and nutrient cycling in some of these types of systems. Um, so we've, we've been investigating both nu- nutrient impacts on macroalgal bloom development as well as the potential for top down effects so can herbivores potentially control some of these blooms are there other species competing with the dominant bloom forming species that may moderate some of the interactions uh, there was there were just a whole host of really interesting mm-hmm. fascinating questions to address um, mm-hmm. and then also looking at how climate change might it might change the dynamics of some of these bloom systems there were a lot a lot of different things places we could go
0: and one of the areas I think you're looking at is the extent to which climate change is leading to um, evolutionary adaptation as well.
1: Yes, that, that, that's, um, that's a project I would say in particular where I, I'm working with a, a colleague of mine, Jason Colby, at the University of Rhode Island, who's an evolutionary biologist. And we, we had a grant looking at um, the evolutionary responses of um, actually a mysid shrimp, a species of mysid shrimp, to different climate change scenarios, MySIDS are, are wonderful for this research because they have uh, very short lifespans. You can mm-hmm. culture in the lab over multiple generations, and you know, and then see over the course, say, of, of several generations, do you have um, do different you know, populations reared under different different conditions? Do you start to see different different traits um, mm. over a period of time? And that's something that's, that's harder to do in a lot of other species if they're longer lived or say need larger culturing conditions to be able to investigate those, those types of questions.
0: Yeah, okay. Very interesting. Um, so a couple of years ago you had a paper in the Journal of Ecology with one of your former students. Uh, yes. Can you tell us something about that, that work?
1: Sure. This was with my former PhD student, Michelle Godone, who has since, since graduated and is now, is now fa- faculty. Uh, she, was, she was really interested in looking at some of the ecological interactions between two of our dominant species of bloom-forming algae that we have in Narragansett Bay. So these are both the green algae. They're, they're referred to as sea lettuce because they form these, these large, big, green sheets mm-hmm. of floating mats. And through some other work that was also part of Michelle's PhD thesis, we had determined that instead of having one species of bloom-forming algae, um, we actually had two dominant bloom-forming species within this genus of Ulva. And not at that point, not much was known about how those species interacted, whether or not the same sorts of ecological mechanisms could be responsible for either their bloom development and or bloom control. Uh, and so she, she became very interested in looking at some impacts of a common marine omnivorous um, snail, Ileanasa obsoleta, which, um, which is, is, is an omnivore, a wide, wide variety of species. And we would frequently find it um, you know, all over species. This, this, this organism, these snails are maybe one to two centimeters long, and you can find them hundreds per, per square meter. In an area of mud flats, So they were extremely abundant, and we would find them just all, you would pick up a blade of algae, and they would just be all over, all over blade of algae um, in, in these blooms. So we, we became really interested, does this species, does this snail species have the, have, you know, have potential impacts on, um, on perhaps, you know, limiting the amount of biomass for each of these two different ulvis species. And so through a series of really nice, both laboratory mesocosm experiments, as well as field, field experiments, she was able to show that in, in our laboratory settings, that Ilianasa did um, did significantly um, impact the growth of algae, but actually not not in the way we had thought. Instead of um, instead of Ilianasa, you know, the presence of Ilianasa decreasing the amount of ulga, Ulva that that was growing, um, it actually had the opposite effect. It was actually facilitating Ulva growth, and so that then led mm. us into some some very new territory um, to try to figure out what was what was going on, why it was the presence of the snail was actually increasing the amount of bloom forming algae that we would find. So there's
0: uh, hundreds of these in a the square meter and they yes. increase the amount of this algae. Yes. That's yes. remarkable, isn't
1: <laughs> it? It really is. And one of one of the big things we found is that for the is that for the most part, these snails, even though they are all over the ulva, they're they're actually, even though they will, they can, they can consume ulva, it has been there are some studies published showing they do have impacts. For the most part what we found is that the consumption of ulva, at least in our system, is much more of a byproduct. So one species, I mentioned there's two dominant blade-forming species, one species was facilitated by the snail through the res- removal of, um, of, of diatoms that would colonize the surface of the blades. So the snail is essentially acting mm. like a little lawnmower mm. going over the surface of the algae uh, and primarily removing, the, um, removing epi- epiphytic diatoms and some other microalgae, essentially then freeing up the ulva from, from nice. competitive interactions. And for our other species of Olva, the primary way in which the snail was was facilitating its growth was um, was through the in- inputs of nitrogenous waste products. You have lots of snails; they are mm-hmm. they are eating, they're defecating, and so their their um, their waste products, which are which are nit- nitrogen rich, were actually that, that nitrogen then was being absorbed by by the alva and it was using it for increased growth.
0: How do the snails tell apart the two different species of Olva?
1: That's a good question, and that's something um, that's something we we are not sure, and we're not sure if if they really are. We know about the algal response, how the algae responds to to um, to that, but it's it's from what we could find for one species, removal of an epiphytic diatom film didn't really seem to have much impact on its growth rates. Um, whereas nutrient nutrient inputs were really what we're stimulating it, whereas for the other species, it was the reverse for herbivore preference. Maybe
0: they can tell when there's one sort of uh, diatom community versus another. Maybe they prefer a certain diatom community to feed on, so they right. feed on that alba and mm-hmm. not on the other one a different diatom epiphytic community.
1: They, they certainly could be, and we, we do also know that um, the two all the species have different amounts of defensive of defensive chemistry in their yes. tissues, so there may also be something intrinsic to the alga that, this, that the yeah. snails could potentially use to discriminate between. Okay,
0: between as interesting. Well. Some of your other activities, I've noticed that you serve with the State of Rhode Island Climate Change Panel, what's, what's the work involved there?
1: So, the, the state of Rhode Island um, recently established a, a governor's level um, science, essentially serving as a science advisory board to to the governor as well as as well as the state for impacts of climate change. And so, this panel is it's newly formed. We we just formed this summer. We we're going to have our first meeting hopefully hopefully coming up soon. The goal for this panel is to be able to provide the state with some, both some academic in, input, so there are a couple, myself and one other faculty member at the University of Rhode Island are members on this panel, as well as some of our other key stakeholder groups in the state from different from different, um, different environmental and government agencies. And so the, one of the main goals of this is to really try to increase the collaboration, the interaction between, uh, between government officials in our state house, and the work that's being done by scientists and, and, and managers and policy and policyholders um, within our state. We're, we're, such, we're such a small state, you can get to anywhere you know, within an hour or so, and so it it's really provides a nice test laboratory for, for, for bringing, bringing together some of the different, different key constituents. We all have our different sets of expertise.
0: Is that unique? To have uh, academic scientists working closely with, with state agencies like that,
1: like the I would say this is it's something that's that is definitely increasing in recognition. We're not we're certainly not the only ones to do that. I think I think a lot of a lot of different states are recognizing the increased importance of bringing together disparate people with with different backgrounds and training, um, and having them interact. And so we're we're really excited about it. I think it's our, our governor is fir- re- firmly recognizes the importance of climate change, and she's very much interested in advancing Rhode Island's economy, and she realizes these two things are linked. Climate change is going to impact a lot of what happens to the st- in the state of Rhode Island in terms of our economic development. And so by, by integrating those two, I think that's a really powerful move. It's good news. that's <laughs> It really it? is. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Another thing you do, you're a, a, a lead PI on an NSF-funded experimental program to stimulate competitive research at school. What's
1: yes. that all about? So EPSCoR is a program on the national level. Um, the National Science Foundation has an EPSCOR program. Uh, NASA has an EPSCOR program, and some of the other federal agencies do as well. The main goals of EPSCoR are essentially that to stimulate competitive research in states or jurisdictions that, that are traditionally receive less funding from federal, um, federal government um, government granting grant agencies. And so Rhode Island is one of current. currently, there are 25 states and three additional jurisdictions, so Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, who are eligible to apply for EPSCoR funding from the National Science Foundation. And so our program, it's a five-year, $20 million grant made to the state of Rhode Island with the University of Rhode Island, my home institution, as the lead. Um, we just we were recently re, um, received a one an, a no cost extension for for one year so we're now we've now just started year six mm-hmm. of this program and our research focus is marine life science and climate change and so our goal is by working with nine there are nine different institutions of higher education in Rhode Island that are part of this grant um, to en- enhance training and workforce development in marine life sciences and, and climate change research throughout the state so that takes. That takes many different forms. We have a very successful SURF and Undergraduate Summer Research Fellowship program that involves un- undergraduates from, from our different institutions. Um, we have graduate training programs, we have professional development, we have science communication workshops. Um, we've had some economic development workshops in the past. And so it's it's it is a a, a challenge. I took it, I took this on about a year ago um, when our previous previous PI stepped down. Um, but it's 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 a lot of fun to see to see that the good we can do across across the state of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So that occupies officially it's on 50 percent um, lead PI EP and the other 50 percent of my time are in faculty duties. So right, I do yeah. research and I teach.
0: Yeah, sounds very exciting. Well, in the last couple of minutes, let's just uh, uh, focus on on aquatic ecology more general. Um, One of the things that the the Journal of Ecology is hoping to do is to to raise its profile in this area. And we would like to be the the first choice of authors to submit their best plant ecological research generally to the Journal of Ecology, but increasingly the work of aquatic ecologists. Um, Do you think there's a a, a scope for aquatic ecologists to um, to be interested in publishing in the Journal of Ecology,
1: I absolutely think so. And the, one of the things that that caught my eye when we when we first were looking at publishing the Journal of Ecology was that it has a very, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's an excellent publication. And it has a really strong focus on broad ecological principles, and so most of the types of of ecological questions that people are asking, they may be asking in a terrestrial system, they may be asking in an aquatic, either freshwater or marine system, um, but. But overall, this—I mean—the attention to you know, addressing broad ecological questions, the actual system you're doing is is important for to some extent. But really, the applicability across systems is something that's key. And so, I think something that's that be really is is really important is that. As both aquatic and terrestrial ecologists, we're reading each other's work and reading it in, in a broad context because there's a lot there's a lot to be learned from what's going on in the system that is you know that is quite different from your own system.
0: Yeah, some of the the fundamental work in ecology was Joe Connell's work in intertidal organisms, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Are, are there some areas in aquatic ecology that, um, that perhaps terrestrial ecologists can learn from? Some areas that you're working on. that we're not working on
1: i think there's 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 definitely an opportunity for for cross collaboration one of the one of the things in particular that we realized when we were doing the the paper that we that um that michelle ganon my student published a couple years ago was that we started looking for examples of herbivores facilitating plant growth and the terrestrial, for instance, the terrestrial ecology literature, there are there are numerous examples of that, of that happening mm-hmm. in different terrestrial settings. And that, that's actually a case of sort of the flip side. In the aquatic, aquatic, in the aquatic setting, there were some examples, but the literature on that was 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 simply not not as well developed. There just weren't there just weren't as many instances and sort of the, the different types of, of ways that, that aquatic herbivores could facilitate Plant growth in aquatic systems hadn't been explored mm-hmm. so that that was that was fascinating on you know sort of coming from, from right, that yes. perspective um, and then I would say on the flip side of of marine work being able to, to influence and impact terrestrial systems I think one of one of the great strengths we have in the marine setting is that we have um, when you think of of the life history habit habits of different types of organisms in marine settings we have both Primary producers, as well as a lot, um, a myriad of animal species that are sessile, and so when we look at kind of some of the different things that come into play if you're a sessile versus a mobile species, there's all sorts of interesting interactions you can think of from a very broad ecological context, and that's that's something to me that is very fascinating. It gets back to some of my earliest work that got me interested in ecology, which was in life history strategy and how do different organisms mm-hmm. cope about going through their life cycle, and I think. I think just simply by the way different organisms cope and live in their environments, we, we can stand, There's a lot we can learn from each other. Yeah, I
0: mean, of course, in aquatic systems, especially the algae, the life cycles mm-hmm. are so complicated, <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine mm-hmm. that you know the selection pressures and the demography of those systems mm-hmm. has got to be not very well explored. I would have thought.
1: There's there's been some recent. There's definitely been some recent work, but there there is a lot that's, that that remains to be done. And, you can ask that from an ecological context. Why might you have a life history strategy cycle that has multiple free-living independent phases? You can ask yeah. that from an evolutionary perspective. What's, you know why, why might such systems evolve or persist if they have evolved? You know, what, what would cause them to persist over time and not have one phase eventually become the dominant phase and the other phase um, become dependent upon it? Um, and so when we look at, say, different, different lineages of plant evolution, we can you, know, you can see over time the different you know, different strategies that, different you know you know angiosperms are going to have, have you know, typically have you know have one type of life cycle others others like mosses and ferns are going to have life cycles where you have more of a balance between mm-hmm. between gametophyte yeah. and sporified generations and so that's that's something that's always held a special place in my heart for understanding <laughs> what's going on but it's it can be quite challenging when phases say if they look identical to each other that could pose a whole other set of just with logistical yes. logistical problems yes. in terms of investigating how how they how they interact how they, you know how the how their ecological interactions might differ or be similar.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think you've given a, a good plug for us all wanting to move to the coast <laughs> and, do our, and do our research. Anything else you'd like to add to this podcast?
1: Um, I think I'd like to, I'd like to mention that um, some of some of my more recent work has. Um, has started to diverge a bit so I'd say some, the, the algal bloom ecology work is, is still definitely a big part and a big focus of my lab but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, some work one of my graduate students is doing looking at impacts of ocean acidification mm-hmm. primarily on marine algal on marine algae but on some trophic trophic level interactions uh, both ocean acidification and eutrophication combining those two those two um, those two factors. And then more recently, some of the invasive species work I've been doing both in terrestrial as well as mm. marine systems. It's, I have a collaboration with some terrestrial ecologists. And so that's, that's a very fruitful and fun fun collaboration to get me thinking in different systems. I look
0: forward to seeing those papers in the Journal of ecology. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, David.